Right, hello and welcome to the next installment of the SUS News Podcast Series where we interview newsmakers and discuss the news and applications relevant to the global unmanned technologies community. I'm your program host, Patrick Egan. Here's where we'd usually say hello and welcome to our uh, co-host, Gene Robinson, but he's out actually demoing that uh, Locate software, which is... is uh, Taking the world by a storm, so we will not have that segment. But we do have an interesting show today. We've got some real, um, we call them unmanned aircraft systems pioneers. They've been around for a long time. Uh, and so our guests today are Tony White and Jason White of uh, Galaxy Unmanned Systems. Tony, are you out there? I'm right here. And Jason? Roger here. You guys are too excited this morning. I'm in my oh, second uh, pot of coffee, so I'm, uh, I'm juiced up and ready to go. Anyway, uh, as I said in, in the introduction, um, in this space, uh, you know, and so before I guess we get the conversation rolling, let's uh, maybe we can start with Tony. And Tony, could you, um, for the benefit of the audience, um, and your experience, you have a lot of experience. And, you know, it's kind of funny. As I always do this in every show. I'm like, I, I want people to explain their own bio because I don't want to read a guy like you that's had so much experience. I have, you know, four or five pages. So I like to let people hit the, the high points that they think are relevant. So could you uh, indulge us with that, Tony? All right. Sounds good. First of all, thanks for having me on the show. Sure. Uh, yeah, I've been in the industry. I've been in the uh, RC flying uh, hobby for over 40 years, and I've been in the UAV drone space for over 30. So we were doing it before it was popular. We pioneered it back in the 90s. Um, around the 2000s, I founded Galaxy Blimps, and we started doing unmanned airships. And that kind of uh, kicked off a whole new genre of uh, possibilities for us. We survived for... Uh, up to 2009, uh, 2007, we got our infamous uh, cease and desist from the FAA saying we can no longer fly commercially until they figured out the rules. So we spent close to two to three years after that finishing up another 75-foot blimp to do aerial broadcasting. We did a couple of demos for ESPN, and um, we we're all set to go. We demoed out at, uh, at Quantico, Virginia for the uh, – uh, the the Arc Two, I believe, the FA Arc Two. We had all the all the big boys out there, and we had our 60 foot airship out there and did a demo. And we demoed at ESPN's headquarters, and all set to go. And then got the uh, good old cease and desist. So then uh, transitioned over to the DoD, stood up a uh, helped set up a aerostat training site out in Yuma, Arizona. Did that for about nine months. Transitioned through there to the uh, Scan Eagle. Flew that in Afghanistan and Iraq, and just uh, jumping around the drone industry as it changed. You know, just being, you know, building drones for people, getting their uh, 333s as, as that rolled in. And uh, currently, we've uh, relaunched our company, and uh, we've gotten a lot of traction. And uh, we we're servicing a uh, contract for Bell. I just uh, built two 10-pound uh, payload uh, quadcopter drones to support a uh, Bell contract. So that'll bring us up to uh, up to speed. All right. Well, we wanted to talk about that, and you glossed right over the U.S. Army Space and Missile Defense Command Battle Lab. You left that out. Oh yeah, but, I did that too. 
You know, that's okay. That's why I say, I mean, it's really, uh, it's hard, you know, when someone's got so much experience, uh, you know, you own through two pages of stuff, and it's kind of funny. So, I mean, you went through all of that stuff, and you left out a good highlight. But anyway, I'm here, yeah. to, to, I'm here to help. I just threw you the life ring. Um, uh, yeah, Jason. Me and you, it also does me and you out in the middle of, uh, out, in the, uh, out in the desert white sands. That's right, getting uh, cooked by the uh, Raytheon's <laughs> radar out there. That was, that was, yeah, that was a crazy scenario. We got a, we inherited an old aerostat with a really old mooring platform and uh, did a test fill out in the middle of, out in one of their hangars that wouldn't hold air. So we talked them into getting a new bag, and it was very – we pulled it off. I think it was, what, a 200-pound payload and a 150-pound payload capacity. No, I think it was. Uh, so. I, I don't. I think they remember they tried to stuff about three hundred and fifty or four hundred pounds on there. Yeah, it was ridiculous. <laughs> they it were like, "Well, how come you can't, you know, get to altitude? What's the problem?" And I'm like, uh, uh, "Yeah, well, somebody's a little fat." Yeah, it was getting it was cooked by the radio. So it makes sense. Well, the radiation, <laughs> you know, was good, and we did have other uh, packages too that uh, you know had warning signs not to stand in front of them. Uh, unless you were you were looking to maybe uh, well that's another story, but anyway so uh, we, and we can reminisce about the uh, the old let's let's get uh, Jason to give his bio and then we can then we can start reminiscing. Go ahead, Jason. Uh, yeah, like uh, like Tony was saying, we've uh, we grew up with within the RC hobby industry. Our father was a big pioneer. Uh, he did the first proportional uh, um, radios way back in the day. So it was something we kind of just grew up with, and it was a part of everything. So I thought it was normal that I had spinning blades right on my fingertips at, you know, seven years old, six years old with the bandsaws going and, and building model aircraft. So it was – it was uh, it's not such a surprise that we, our careers took the path that they did. Um, so, yeah, like he said, um, around the 2000 era – and before that, um, you know, my dad uh, had done some – contracting work with uh with commercial companies doing you know, doing drone stuff at the time and uh and tony was a big part of that as well and i, I was always there to help with miscellaneous things that kind of seems to be um the role that i like to take which is to provide a provide a facilitator to get things done because you can only do the fun things if you have the uh permission and uh and moolah to do so that makes it a lot easier so we started Galaxy in about 2000 together, basically wanted to do anything we could do with uh, unmanned systems. At the time, they were drones or remote piloted vehicles. And, um, and so, yeah, we went through several different platforms, and the whole idea was let's, uh, let's see what we can do to um, do things safely within the national airspace. And, and I'm sure we'll cover uh, a lot of our company things uh, a little bit later, so I'll try to stick with just what it will what, kind of my background is and so in those roles I focused heavily on you know the design the engineering and uh, CAD modeling and trying to get everything so that we can capture all the good ideas we were having and kind of tie into industry and find the industry because you know there really there really wasn't one so and we did a lot of things we did sports broadcasting uh, within and not even like glamorous sport broadcasting, you know, like the promo things where the guys run around in suits and stuff. We weren't doing that, but we were chasing them around in blimps and doing in, whatever indoor promos we could do and, uh, you know, taking things outside and then carrying cameras and just really just trying to find the industry and find a way to make money. And uh, and so it was really nice back, 
not so nice because we were talking with the FAA saying, hey, we want to do things outside. We want to operate. And um, and so we got their notional blessing to go out and do things. So we did. We went out and ran, ran signs for people on blimps. We went out and did uh, all, any job that we can get paid for, we did. And then, of course, as you mentioned, we got the cease and desist, and that immediately thrust us over to – uh, the DOD space and that whole idea is we want to stay within the industry. You know, I mean, we could have gone, by that time I built up so many skills in, in uh, basic entrepreneurship business and, you know, with an entrepreneur, you got to do everything. So I literally, my track could have gone anywhere at that point, but I was definitely of the mindset that now I want to stay, we've got this uh, momentum and I want to find a way to keep doing it. And it's kind of a shame that, you know, our entrepreneurial history in this country that we have to go from a commercial enterprise to no, let's go. We have to go to the military side because that's the only space that we can play in. And so we did. We actually went, uh, as he said, went set up a training program for a tethered aerostat, amongst a bunch of other things. And uh, that was that's been really successful. Um, and uh, that program went through an entire arc where we uh, basically got handed uh, a requirement that said, look, we're going to deploy people and about three months to Afghanistan. We're giving them this system right here, which we had about a couple of sessions to learn about. And then uh, you guys are going to stay in the school house up and you got to punch out six people a week, which turned to 12 people a week uh, within a month after that. And so we did. Uh, we ended up standing up a, a ground school with a classroom and a simulation room. And then we actually had the flight operations, launch and recoveries, and then we did a full on check ride with them. And the school was very successful in terms of getting the numbers out and getting them familiar with the system. And our whole bit forever has always been practical application in the field. And you don't really understand something until you've done it and touched it. I mean, the theory stuff is great and you need it, but you really need the, the hands-on experience. And that's the way we ran that schoolhouse. And we ended up deploying over 52 systems in theater and over a thousand operators. And we did the recertification training and, being within the DOD, I mean, I, I lament that I had to go that direction, but at the same time, you always want to try to find the best in every situation, and we did. We we learned all there was to know about requirements, about um, the, the whole idea of training, curriculum development, and how you tie things to particular systems, and it was all at the end of the gun, you know, like, you got to get this done, and also, you're going to be held responsible for everything bad that might ever happen, so... <laughs> kind of that armor protection of I don't, uh, you know, I want to do stuff, but I want to do it right and safe and make sure that I've covered my bases in terms of liability and that we've actually done it correctly and that we've accounted for things. We're not just cowboys out here, uh, even though we've been asked to be ones, but let's be responsible cowboys and let's capture all the data we need to capture so that we can do this correctly. And that's kind of been my role in government. Uh, I'm still in the government contracting world uh, as well as relaunching Galaxy and Med Systems. Uh, doing doing those types of things, doing standardization, doing uh, systems engineering, basically um, being able to be a jack of all trades where you take an engineering project and you try to go through the entire life cycle for that and uh, capture all the relevant data and be able to tie them into like a dynamic workspace and get things done. That's a whole other thing. I uh, don't want to bore everybody to tears, but um, that's what our industry has begged for on the FAA side, so it's what I've embraced, and that's kind of been our uh, strategy for how we reintegrate into the world, almost feel like a penal institution, reintegrating into society uh, with the FAA systems is doing it in such a way that you're, um, you're capturing all the data that a regulator would need 
to be able to understand the system and operate safely, provide standardization, and, uh, and really help drive requirements from a needs and risk mitigation standpoint and get, get systems in the air and get systems in the field as we've been promised since I don't even want to say hello. So well, it, yeah, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of, uh, <laughs> lot of things to back that. Uh, what we do at this podcast because, uh, you know, we get – this is uh, – by the way, this is the 150th um, podcast that I've done in the – so it's been it's been a while. But we usually get guests like you guys on here that have so much experience. Um, it's really hard to just nail down little points. So, <clears throat> again, that's why I like people to kind of discuss what – they think is relevant. I'm going to talk about because the thing, and you know, you talked about that. But uh, I, I've done you know talks and whatnot since, and the idea, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you know you guys remember that because it was nothing. I mean, you know, absolutely. System and ship them off to Afghanistan. It didn't, didn't, didn't we pull that off in like six weeks or something? And it was, it was a crazy fast amount of time to. Yes, uh, we did. Get these people deployed, and and even uh, the way. What you know? How, well, you know, it just. I, I remember, uh, you know, there were there were long days. I remember seven days a week and fifteen and sixteen hour days and drive time and all the rest of that. Uh, so it, it wasn't like it just fell into place. There were there were lots of things that needed to be done, and I, t- I know Tony spent a lot of time out there in the desert uh, coming up with yeah, techniques. We went from a, a, a already robust uh, concept where we had to push people through week to week to week to stand up rapidly. But by the end of that program, we were running 24-7, three shifts, uh, constant training ongoing. We were running six concurrent classes at once, actually uh, more like nine to 12, depending on if we were doing training our foreign um, – the. Oh, I can't remember the term of it now, but uh, basically um, coalition partners. We were training those people. Yeah. We were doing recertifications. Yeah. We were doing cross-training on different systems. So by the end of it, we would have 12 classes going on at once on three across three different sites that yeah. probably had a, a distance between them of about 90 miles. And those were running three ships, uh, basically utilizing the same assets uh, in a capacity where we would literally tear the system completely apart, build it all back together again, do it, use it in uh, launch and recoveries, and then do a full operational scenario on it, and then do a full check ride operational scenario on it, and then tear it all back down again, and had to keep that functioning week to week. You know, and you know, that's a lot of hands on it. There's new people on it, and I think it was quite a ta- quite an achievement to be able to do that and have functional systems for as long as we did, and we never lost a single system in training. Yeah, we we uh, we had it. A- you know, write the manuals as we went, training and system. Yeah, that too. <laughs> so you know that I, I like I said that was that um, was a, a, a big lift, but uh, it did come together. And you're right. I mean, uh, we I, I, it's amazing when you look back on it. You're like, wow, that happened. Uh, it did take a lot of work, and there was a lot of you know blood, sweat, and tears in that one, and frustration, and you know there were good people too. Uh, Took a lot. You had to you had to uh, remain, you know, cool under lots of stress. So uh, it was good. It was a good time. Um, 
for sure, and uh, a lot was accomplished. It's too bad it didn't get really like chronicled because I think that was a that was that that could have been a model. But you know, I, I did want to flash back into the say early two thousands and before. And uh, I think somebody brought up the RPVs. I mean, you guys have been in uh, drones so long that they were RPVs or remotely piloted vehicles, and then they were UAVs, and then they were UAS, and then they were drones, and then they were UAVs again. We've been through uh, multiple nomenclature changes. But um, that was you know, the original name. Original name of, of Galaxy was Galaxy RPV. That was the first name we took. That was that's how uh, long you guys been around. And your dad, it was good that you mentioned him too. You're, you're right, Ted, uh, transmitters, uh, whatever else. You, you kind of came up in this uh, as a family project. Um, you know, people, a lot, of, a lot of folks believe that the drone thing's totally new. I mean, they don't even know that there was a 3D robotics or, you know, GoPro made a drone or whatever. And that's only a few years ago. And uh, people say, oh, you know, this is this is something, everything we're doing here is totally new. You know, they're using it in movies, and they're using it for broadcast, and they're, you know. And you guys were actually uh, doing that. I mean, you, you guys had really, one of the only systems that, uh, let's say, carry a, um, an EOIR sensor or like a Cineflex that, uh, what, what was that, 14-inch ball you guys were uh, flying? Yeah, that was the Cineflex V14, yeah. And if you, yeah. if you want to talk nostalgia, this is an interesting conversation I had with uh, uh, with a guy online on one of these uh, these uh, web these webinars we go to for AppWorks. Is that uh, back in the I believe it was like eighty five, eighty four. I was in junior mm-hmm. high and I was the backup pilot to my father, and we were flying a system called the uh, the Blivet. And basically, it was a uh, munition, an un, uh, a UAV uh, munition that looked like a flying watermelon. And the, the goal of that system was to uh, deploy these things in, a, in, a, in, a, in the head of a missile. And each one, you deploy like a couple of hundred of these things. They pop out wings and tails, and they would guide themselves down and take out, you know, whole targets, whole fobs. This is back in the 80s. And uh, what my dad did is we he built two UAVs for this system. One of them was the uh, the the Blivet, and then he built the Pathfinder drone that looked like a big torpedo tube with wings and tails, and that was going to be the controlling UAV that would tell these things what targets to hit, and then it would dive in and take out a target. And it's so funny that you know these concepts are coming back around full circle again with the swarms. I'm like, this is the stuff we did back in the 80s. And uh, yeah, we didn't have the tech, you know. Space. Yeah, yeah, and we were Good. dropping. I, I was a kid flying a ten-foot wingspan airplane with with the blivet on top of it, taking it up to a thousand feet, rolling it inverted next to a helicopter, trying to hold formation with a helicopter while we dropped the the munition. And my dad flew it down and, and did the test drops and see how it flew. I mean, because there was no the sims didn't work. We didn't have sims back then, and everything had to be tested. It was out in the middle of uh, East Texas somewhere. I don't remember when, where, but that was really some, you know, that was really cowboy stuff back in the day. Even the guidance systems, they were using inertial navigation and uh, and star navigation. I want to say. Yeah, yeah, it was it was uh, like no GPS, so they were trying right. to tie in a just a gyro autopilot off of a full size aircraft. Dad had to build a. Um, Inside the uh, the Pathfinder. Now, now the other one, the Blivet, was always in conceptual form. I don't, it never got. It was LTV was the company, and I think they shortly got bought out by uh, General Dynamics. 
um, and they, I don't know if it got shelved or what happened in the system, but we he had, he mocked up the gyro system that was going to go in the blivet, and the gyro is all timing. Everything was timing, and one thing I do remember is the energy engineers yelling at each other about timing the turn. It's 10 seconds to roll, 5 seconds to pull, roll back 2 seconds. I just kind of giggle now when I hear this, when I'm messing with these pick hawks, trying to get the wiggle out of these things, and these guys are just trying to get a turn, just a, just a level turn done and how far we've gone and just how everybody kind of forgets. And we've got a, we had a, we've got a UAV uh, uh, museum that just opened just outside of Dallas mm-hmm, here. Mm-hmm. And we've been talking to them about standing up some stuff that dad did back in the, back in the fifties. Uh, yeah, and we might as well say his name. It's uh, Ted White. As I was on I'm sorry. Yeah, Ted we White. lost him a couple of years ago. Yes, um, and I, we did do a story on that uh, museum. It's pretty interesting, but uh, yeah, a lot of people are blown away that uh, you know any and all of this has really been uh, has been done before. It's it's kind of frustrating. I mean, for someone that does uh, news and and uh, analyzes and you know kind of punditry, whatever. Um, oh, this is the first. You know, yeah, no, you're you're twenty years late. You know, or thirty years late, or fifty years late, or whatever. Um, yeah, and, and I started in when we started in two thousand. I mean, playing off of what Tony was talking about with uh, with the aircraft that he was flying and flying inverted. I mean, we were flying similar aircraft where we were strapping cameras underneath it, and you know, run, vetting the Piccolo at the time. I think was the one that uh, that one of the only controllers that were there. But that's why we said remote piloted vehicles is because we were letting the FA know and everybody know that we always have a pilot in control. We're operating uh, according to the way we've operated our entire lives, which is line of sight, stay within line of sight, don't take on jobs that are irrational for the platform. And then, and the whole point is to see what's possible with those types of configurations. Um, <laughs> trying to mix in uh, whatever autonomous systems they had, but like I said, they did, they weren't reliable enough that, me being a commercial, I mean, being a, um, a entrepreneur and a businessman, I'm not going to go out and put a system out that I don't know is going to do the job because the guy doesn't care how cool it is. And it was amazing back then. We had to teach them about remote piloted systems. We had to let them understand the concept that, no, we're going to be flying around. There's nobody going to be in it, but you're still going to get your pictures. And after they got over that, they were like, well, I want my pictures, and they don't really care how we did it. So it's, it's all about the business end of it and making sure that we're delivering on whatever service we were there to provide. And so we've always yeah. been of the mindset that it has to be reliable and repeatable. But anyway, so the point is we're flying, you know, golf courses, taking pictures with uh, with fixed-wing aircraft. Uh, we had a bigger bigger twin engine one that we were using uh, to carry heavier payloads, and we're just sitting there looking at ourselves in the field going, is this really the best way because we want to carry a full, you know, broadcast quality camera, and uh, I'm just I'm not feeling so good with this liability. And so we ended up going to the light of an air systems and doing airships uh, because we were playing with them indoors anyway. And when we started doing that, that's when the, the gates opened in terms of practical application and being able to really fulfill customer objectives in, in reliable and long duration was, was doing blimps. So we've never been like, hey, I love blimps. They're the greatest thing ever. I mean, we've with RC, you're familiar with everything because you build everything. And so when we started getting into the lighter than air, it just made sense from an airspace integration standpoint and a safety of operation standpoint to it's the safest, most efficient way to carry the heaviest stuff. And that's what we needed to do back then. We're talking early 2000. 
we developed our systems from 2003 to 2009 in the wild, I say, um, doing jobs. We literally funded them by from one job to another job. Any money we would get, we would roll right back into the product and get the systems larger and bigger. And we started with a 35-foot trailer-based system where you can drive it around, pull it out, go do a Chick-fil-A gig where you drop, you know, happy cows on uh, people with parachutes, and everybody laughed and everybody loved it. It was gas-powered. Uh, and then we would get up, we all got all the way up to a 75 foot. We were carrying a full V14 HD broadcast camera for ESPN for a live broadcast at the NHRA where the director didn't even know that we weren't the actual helicopter or the regular blimp that they usually see. And we were told when we showed up, um, you know, you're not going to be used. Don't expect to be used. You're not going to get any headgear. We're not going to talk to you. Fly around. And just uh, we'll look at your feed and we'll evaluate and we'll let you know if we like you. Um, and then within the first flight, within the first 30 minutes, uh, there was a there was a production crewman, you know, just tearing to, on a four wheeler over to our trailer and opened the door and threw a headset into the camera operator and said, "You're on air. You're on air. <laughs> Get yeah. no here." And, <laughs> yeah. So that's yeah. Uh, that's how. That's how smoothly we try to operate or integrate into well, whatever the customer is trying to do. Yeah, but you're, you know, there's, okay, so, and I don't want to spend all of the time on history because I think we need to talk about the new stuff. But, I, you know, again, listening to that, I have to go back. And, you know, so people think a drone is a quadcopter. I would say that 90% of the, uh, the people in this business, oh, you know, a, a drone is a, a phantom. You know, okay, that's not really the case. So, you know, when you're talking about the early days of this, people, I try and tell people, this is another uh, thing that chats my hide, the regulatory part of this. At the time, you guys were flying, and when we say visual line of sight, people are probably thinking, well, how are you going to do anything with a phantom and visual line of sight? Um, 14-foot wingspan aircraft, fixed-wing aircraft you were flying, and then also you had the 60-foot um, blimp, the 75- and the 95-foot blimp. Um, so as far as visual line of sight, I mean, you know, and the, the other beauty of this deal regulatory wise is the, the blimp was a right away vehicle. And, and I contended with the FAA, if you can't see a 95 foot blimp in the air, you probably shouldn't be flying, uh, you know, GA or, or any aircraft at that point. I, I think, you know, when I, and I, uh, muse back on this, cause, uh, again, you guys, um, you were my, uh, lighter than air SMEs for the FAA US SUAS arc, which turned into 107. And uh, mm -hmm. I think what really torpedoed the lighter than air, because you remember you guys, I had you guys come in and talk about this stuff. And at the end, last minute, they, oh, yeah, no, this, uh, this is too big of a lift for lighter than air. We can't do it. But I think what the, the day your goose got cooked was at the, uh, the demo at Quantico, and the FBI was uh, the um, was the, the sponsor. Was there, and you remember? I'm sure you guys remember that dude from the FBI said we would have flown this at the Obama uh, inauguration yeah. if we knew something like this existed. even existed. And uh, uh, that was it, right there. You were done. Um, and I think you were done because you know the other systems they were getting 45 million dollars for that could carry the same um, sensors and things like that. And I, I truly believe the, uh, the control that was, was uh, on the, let's say, tiller on, on that arc doomed the lighter than air, uh, which is too bad. Yeah. Uh, 
I'll say what's what's a little frustrating about that whole thing was they would not speak in anything other than weight. They're like, oh, you got to be under 55 pounds, or I don't know what the weights were back then. Uh, but, you know, they're yeah, literally know, just throwing weights, throwing weights, throwing weights. And I'm like, guys, we're 700 pounds, and we're safer than a 55-pound flyaway. Well, the concept of most of that is in, is in a big bag and, and distributed weight. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, that concept, I mean, everybody talks about how they believe in science, but nobody could understand the lighter-than-air concept. You know, it's like, well, well, not really, you know, because it's lighter than air. And uh, anyway, nobody really wanted to believe the concept. The same thing with uh, Ted McGeer was on and gave us a few physics lessons. And people on the ARC actually got pissed off that, you know, he was trying to showboat. And I'm like, you know, the dude's got like a Ph.D., you know, uh, like physics. I mean, I don't know if it's in physics, but, you know, the dude knows what he's talking about. He's up there doing the... uh, the uh, calculations on the on the uh, whiteboard, I, yeah, I, I, you can't deny it, man. But uh, that made people angry. Um, trying to tell them how these things worked mechanically. Most of the people at DFA were not aviation people; they were software or some other ancillary thing. And I think we we still suffer from that today. That's uh, the American aerospace industry suffers from a lack of um, participation from SMEs. Um, and I think we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna see more fallout from that. That's happening as we speak. But uh, another podcast topic. Anyway, so yeah. um, you know you've you've got uh, years and years of experience, safe uh, flying, um, all the rest of that. You've um, you know we're we're at the head of standing up. I mean, pigs turned out to be what was that like a two billion dollar project? Something like that. I, mean, I don't even know. Big. I was on the business end of all the money they were spending and had to take it to the field. So <laughs> I never really actually looked at the budget. It was just too – it was so much trying to make sure that we were successful that uh, I never even got to look at that. Uh, it turned out it was huge. And, uh, I mean, I, I don't care what anyone says. Uh, the success wouldn't have been there without you guys. I mean, I witnessed it personally. So um, – Whatever, you have this whole track record. Now we're moving on. And like you said, I mean, you know, people used to ask me, like, well, you know, or insinuate that I, you know, oh, you're flying illegal or whatever. And I said the same thing as you. Uh, I'm not, you know, I wasn't out there flying illegally because I kind of want to do it the right way and I don't want to discredit myself and everything else. So the only place that was left to fly was either RC Hobby or for the military. And same thing. And, you know, it was a lot of time away from home. Um, in in austere places that aren't, you know, they're not vacation. Yuma is not a vacation spot, um, <laughs> contrary to what you have heard. And uh, places like that or whatever. And it's interesting and it was fun and, you know, there's a mission and you're dedicated to all of that. But it's not what I want to live in my hometown. I want to be near my family. I want to work. I just want to put food on the table. I'm not really asking to do anything crazy here. So well, then we got to deviate a little bit off of that point, what you're saying right there, because that, that hits home hard to me in terms of how do you actually integrate a technology into society? You do it at home. You don't do it in designated spots in the middle of nowhere where you send off your pe- the people that have a passion for it and you basically banish them to the netherworlds. No, you innovate, you advance, and you create where you live with the things around you. And that's the only way you're ever going to actually get something fully realized is if you allow it to develop in its natural habitat, which is where people live. 
And I want to I want to hit on that point too because you were the guys and you know, people there was no regulation there was no any there was no, that's not true, and that's another thing nope. that you guys should be credited with is uh, you know there's documentation and uh, Tony you're a you're a uh, part sixty one pilot too correct yes you have a yes. GA pilot license when, uh, so, it, oh yeah and it, well in two thousand one uh, we went to DC. And uh, we talked to the 9157 office that was dreaming up the new RPA or RPV regs, and they were all RC guys. They were helicopter guys. So we had a good relationship with the FAA up until uh, 07 or up until these other ARCs, the alt ARCs started popping up. And um, we were flying in Class B airspace, fully vetted and approved by the FAA. That's one thing that I keep telling everybody. We were flying downtown Dallas with an approved uh, flight plan in Class B airspace, and we did all the legwork to coordinate that. And the FAA is kind of legless. You're flying something unregulated, and we were like, well, that's not good enough. Can we, can we come up with some procedures? And we got them to endorse procedures, which we have documented that we did do. We did. Uh, we were able to integrate into Class B, so we proved that we could well, do it back then. And and you're, you're hitting the, the point there that there was a procedure, and and people don't realize that. Uh, I mean, really, I heard uh, things changed because because I used to do the same thing. I'd call the tower, the closest airport. Hey, you know, if I was going to fly close to that and say I'm going to do this X Y, oh, that sounds good. However. The, the big rub on that one is, is that they didn't get paid for uh, servicing an aircraft, even though it worked and it worked fine. Um, you know, things had to change, but I don't want to go down too far down that road. The thing is there was a process there. It really wasn't regulated, but it did work. And there are videos of you guys flying in this uh, class B airspace. There are videos out there. If you uh, get on YouTube and search galaxy blimps, I believe, or maybe even uh, galaxy unmanned systems, you can see the videos of these guys uh, doing broadcast back in 2008, seven, right? HD broadcast. So that's something you want to see now. And we're running out of time. I, it always, it always surprises yeah. me that you know, these things are 45 minutes and uh, I'm like, oh, you know, are we going to make it? And we always run over, but anyway, um, so I want to talk about what you guys are up to now. Cause I know you, you're both still in the business. Um, you know, the, tribulations and and uh doing things to put food on the table um you know whatever else and now things are picking back up uh, and you guys get it you, you got an sbir thing going you got some other stuff going that you can share with us uh yeah i can i can speak to all that um so yeah we we noticed the change in the friendlier face at least uh with the faa um you know, around the two th- 2013, that whole era, you know way more about it than I do. But um, we got the signal that, okay, we should probably start figuring out how to re-commercialize. Um, and we had gotten so much in um, a good, good positive experience within the, D- within the uh, DOD contractor space. Uh, I landed with a really great company uh, doing uh, technical publication support and training products. And uh, they really helped me uh, understand the contracting element to it and help actually go after contracts and do proposal writing and see the end-to-end process because they were, they were a small 8A business at the time. Um, and so basically playing off of that, around 2014, we reinstantiated uh, Galaxy Unmanned Systems as an entity 
and then um, wanted to find find a way to utilize public-private partnerships to re-enter the commercial space uh, rationally and not with any kind of pie in the sky, hey, we can do all this because we've already done that path. And we've already, we're just, this whole time that we've been in observation mode watching the commercial space kind of, uh, I say explode, but it's more like a controlled explosion with the dome over it where you're blowing up a munition that you don't actually want to go off. I guess that'd be a good analogy to put it, um, where essentially you have these these uh, companies with ideas and they, they're they're soaking up tons of VC money and they're they're you know promising technologies and promising the world and then they find they don't have an actual outlet because it's illegal to operate or uh, you can't get certification and whatnot. So hey. we didn't want to. Or, we, or we, snake we, oil. Having, yeah, or yeah. snake oil. But at the end of the day, though, these companies, um, particularly the good actors, are really trying to develop uh, capabilities. And so we're watching all these capabilities, and it's just candy land for us because these are all things that we just are dying to be able to integrate into systems. And, you know, why, reinv- why reinvent things that already exist, uh, just uh, integrate them, make them better, and make them practical and useful for, for whatever outlet you're trying to plug it into. So that's kind of been our approach, and we're using the uh, Small Business Innovation Research uh, SBIR program to capture contracts here and there. We were doing other transaction authorities, and if you go in a DOD commercial space, there's there's a litany of solicitations out there that you can just chase money in. And so we started chasing some money with uh, with commercial solutions opening contracts with CBP, basically trying to hit but those are really mature products and so we kind of find a rhythm within the uh, innovation research office doing the SBIRs and STTRs and um, being able to do the feasibility studies that shows that this is a practical thing because it's something you already have to explain anyway. You have to explain why this thing works and why it's good even though I can, it's much faster to just show someone and they get it in five seconds when you, when you show up there but you know Sometimes the uh, bureaucracy doesn't work that way, so you have to do the study. And and this actually, and that's another thing I want to mention really quickly, is during our downtime, um, when we were in the DOD space, we actually hooked up with uh, an aerospace engineer. A uh, guy runs a company called Waterlines Aero Designs, and basically I went I went full open kimono with him and said, hey, man, uh, we did we did some things. I want to make sure we capture them. Um, we, we we did everything in CAD. We did all of our engineering work was in CAD, and um, we had all of our products. And I wanted to start integrating all the things that were coming out in the world. And I know I'm going to run out of time, so I'm going to have to try to blaze through all of this. So, um, okay, but well, before you blaze through there, hold on before you blaze through there because I want to make sure we get this in here. Um, could you could you give the listeners the uh, website so they can go and I mean, cause you guys have got tons of documentation. Videos, pictures, I, it's, 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 it's crazy. So go ahead. Let's have that. Galaxyuas.com. G, and okay. The word galaxyuas.com. And that, that's our website. It's actually focused on the, air, the airships and, the, and commercial. Uh, we, we don't, we've done so many proposals uh, over the last two, three years that we have a, a very strong narrative, very strong use cases, and we have an entire roadmap, an innovation roadmap we're very, very excited about that we've kind of kept under wraps. I haven't actually migrated that stuff over to the website yet. Um, and so we're using the SBIRS TTR programs um, to be able to mature various concepts we have for automation, uh, mixing in the AI ML components, 
being able to do uh, multi-tiered swarming, being able to do guidance and autonomy, being able to do sense and avoid, and even doing full autonomous launch and recoveries. Uh, these things, like I say, are, are completely achievable, and we're utilizing this mechanism to build relationships within the industry, finding strategic partners uh, that are really good at what they do, and going after these proposals together. And like you mentioned, we did um, win an SBIR with the Army doing a tethered-untethered aerostat hybrid, and it was with the, it's with the, the eventual – the PGSS program migrated over to the Army, and it was with that group. So uh, we won that Phase 1 SBIR to put it on a uh, – take a tethered aerostat, take our technology, kind of integrate them together into a product that can launch off – uh, take off – either without a tether or with a tether. And that gave us, you know, that, that real quick, what came out of that was a complete scientific breakdown and diagnostic of everything you would ever want to know about lighter-than-air platforms uh, that went into a full feasibility study, over a 50-page study, that um, provides hardcore science behind why we, you know, why lighter-than-air is safe and especially when you get down to tactical sizes, how it's incredibly useful. And uh, we've also come up with a novel guidance system and uh, where we put motor, motor pods on the side uh, using the design that we did in the real world with the XFIN configuration where we have a tremendous control over this platform. Well, I wanted to interrupt you, but you then uh, followed up with that because I was going to say that's no easy, you know, you, it kind of the way you put it out there, it sounded, oh, yeah, we just, you know. Uh, a lot of work, a lot of work right. to make that happen. So you did, you hit on that, which is good. Um, yeah, and that was the big deal. Was um, what? What are the what are the dynamics and what are the physics involved in this in this thing? And that for us, it's like I said, it's all manna from heaven because we we won another STTR with the with AppWorks, and this one is for the Orb community, um, which is the whole flying car the car deal. Um, and ours, our proposal was an LTA hybrid electric orb for urban air, morbi- air mobility. And we actually, since it's an STTR, you have to t- partner with a, with a nonprofit. And so we partnered with the University of Texas at Arlington, who, by the way, the, the UTARI program are great people. UTA has been a wonder to work with. We're very happy working with them. And uh, we actually won a proposal with them where we were taking our trailer-based GC35 system and pretty much imbuing it with life where we say, okay, uh, you're going to do uh, a guidance in the presence of wind for an airship, which is actually very hard to do because you actually have to deal with wind. Uh, it's not like a multi-copter where you can pretend it doesn't exist and get away with it because aerodynamics aren't nearly as uh, drastic. Well, with us, we have to deal with that. And so um, that's we, we feel strongly that that's going to advance the unmanned component for a litany of systems way far beyond airships. We're gonna, I think this is a very good one. And, uh, and sense and avoid, of course, and then autonomous launch and recovery, being able to dock from beacons um, with, the, with a big airship. Uh, you know, like I said, it's, um, the multi-copters can do a lot of great things, but this, this is a platform that is highly susceptible to the environment and must react with the environment. And so our whole goal is to make autonomy exist with the, with the environment, playing off the environment to its advantage to be able to actually operate efficiently. So you're not pretending air doesn't exist and you're just going to muscle your way from point A to point B. No, I'm going to use my environment and I'm going to dynamically get from A to B in the most energy efficient way possible. 
Well, yeah, and again, you know, there's a lot there to unpack, but the uh, airship, it is called that for a reason. It's not a party balloon. Um, but, you know, again, you know, different systems have different capabilities. And I, I think the other thing we didn't really go into is how long a uh, unmanned blimp can stay on station, um, which really gives it an advantage over rotary wing aircraft, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot. But, you know, we're down to like 30 seconds here. Um, and like I said, it always happens quick. I don't know how that happens. But I would suggest or encourage people to go over to the website and check stuff out or uh, get in touch with these guys. Like I said, as far as information, documentation, concepts, whatever else, you guys probably have more stuff down on paper uh, than I've seen from many other people. But anyway, we're going to have to leave it there. For and we're today. looking for, we're, we're looking for strategic partners. So look us well, up I think we'll, goes, we'll, uh, we will team with you. Uh, yeah, and, and it's a good uh, good opportunity to work with some people that have lots of experience. Tony's got tons in the field. All right, so I want to thank uh, both of you guys for coming on, and uh, we will talk again soon. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you.